whether they were extreme weather events and heat winds. In fact, we had a wind gust that took out half of our food processing center. So we lost millions of dollars on the farm. Every industry will be affected. The question is to what degree and over what time frame. These are long-term investments. If you're looking for a quick flip, this is not your sector to be in. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Sourcing tech talent and delivering your software roadmap shouldn't be difficult. That's why DZ connects high-growth companies with some of the best pre-vetted developers from across the world. Whether supporting your in-house team, building your dream dev squad, or delivering a project end-to-end, DZ's unique model is trusted by businesses globally to help them rapidly execute software development. DZ is offering all UKTN listeners a 10% discount on their first engagement. Go to dz.com UKTN to access quality development teams today. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly conversation with founders of some of the UK's high growth tech companies. Each episode will talk through the founders' personal journey, their vision for their business and their views of the wider tech industry. I'm Jane Wakefield and today I'm joined by Iggy Bassi, the CEO and founder of climate intelligence platform Sylvest. Welcome Iggy. Thank you very much Jane and it's great to be here. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of Sylvest, climate tech is obviously a hugely important area, and you've come into this, I guess, the hard way by experiencing firsthand the effects that extreme weather can have in farming. So tell me a little bit about that first. No, absolutely. So my my journey in farming started about 14 years ago or so. So I had the opportunity to set up a sustainable farming business in West Africa, which I set up with my co-founder, Karen Chopra. And everything went well. Uh, the first couple of years, we were building infrastructure, we were transferring technology from Latin America and seeds and testing things. But every now and then, we had shocks to the system. So whether they were um, extreme weather events and heat winds. In fact, we had a wind gust that took out half of our food processing center. So we lost millions of dollars on the farm, Jane. So even though we had, we could... We were very well capitalized. We had the best technologies. We had the best equipment. We had the best technical expertise. Climate was uh, battering us pretty hard. Not yeah. just once or twice. Consistently, persistently. Every every season, every now and then, out the blue. So when I sold the business in 2015, it was actually the same year that the Paris Agreement just got signed as well. I was very, very keen to say, how do I get a better understanding of all these events? And are they really random or is there any forecasting capability uh, within these things? So I got together with some mathematicians and, and I had to turn my attention to technology. I knew we had to find answers because I was, again, a well-capitalized farm. There were millions and millions of farmers who just didn't have access to this information. So, so Jane, my story actually started in farming before I went into climate intelligence and transformed it into a built environment platform as well. So tell me a little bit about the platform, how it works. Explain to people who might not understand exactly what it is that Sylvester does. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just step back and say, after we sold that business, we started looking at this fusion between science, machine learning, data sets. So what we really did for the first two to three years was do just lots of research around machine learning. And this was... This was really to bring together some of the world's best earth sciences and multiple data sets. So think about climate simulations, observational data, 
topography data, flooding data, all this brought together, fused together in such a way that you could then look at multiple hazards at the same time. But also what we realized two or three years in, this wasn't just a farming problem, this was an everybody problem. So then we started mapping the world's assets. Say, okay, now that we have fantastic science and we have forecasting signal, can we now look at the world's assets? So can we look at hospitals, water treatment centers, cities, real estate buildings, Amazon warehouses? So what started as being, oh, let's just get a few million assets to train the models. We ended up with about 600, or just, just over 600 million assets on the planet. So our ability now to look at entire companies, cities, sectors, is actually pretty powerful. And it all comes on one unified platform. So you can go into our core product, which is called EarthScan. And lots of companies are now using this. And what they're really doing is really trying to understand at an, at an asset level, how do I think about my adaptation? How much risk am I sitting on? What's already happened to this asset journey? Because the truth is most large companies and governments and cities don't even know the sort of trend line of what's happened in the last 30, 40, 50 years, for instance, right? It's like you go into the doctor, Jay you said, okay, I, I think there's something wrong. Can you go figure something else? So you just baseline yourself. You do a blood test, you do your temperature, you check everything. This is essentially what we want people to do to their most critical assets. So they have a good understanding of what's already happened. Then we have forecasting capability to say, well, what is likely to happen? When will something happen? Why is it likely that it's going to happen? But ultimately over time, what can you do about it? Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can do about it? Because there's some parts of the world, there's very little you can do now, Jane, right? So explain what some of the data sources are that you're gathering and then what intelligence you're layering up on top of that using artificial intelligence, how you're doing that to convert that data into useful information. Yeah. So the first thing is just to tie together all the peer-reviewed science that we can find. So everything from all the IPCC data, flood maps, observational data, topology data, all that comes together in a sort of a broad mathematical framework. And then we look at your asset, Jane. We say, okay, where is the asset located? What are the attributes of the asset? Uh, what's the what's the height of the asset? What's the adjacency to things like the coastline or to other assets? And then that drives our modeling capability to say, okay, now that we have an understanding of Jane's assets and we know all the climate hazards are, let's calculate a range of probabilities. But let's also be clear with Jane what we can know today on climate change at our um, asset level. So we're also very keen to make sure that we tell you how much uncertainty or rather certainty we have as well inside that our forecasting. Because obviously Jane may go ahead and make adaptation investment. She may sell that asset. She may retrofit that asset. You may even replace that asset altogether. So there's a high degree of certainty that we have, but we also want to know how much science can possibly know today, because some of these forecasts can be you know, 15, 20 years out. Some of them can be next season. So that there's, there's lots of variability, but it depends on what you want to do, Jane. So whether you're looking to grow a business, you're thinking about operational risk, you're thinking about offering new green bonds, for instance. So every every business decision comes at a different temporal range, and we want to make sure that you can use that climate intelligence in the same way that you would use business intelligence. So back to where you started in some ways, what practical examples are you getting out of your system that could help, say, West African farmers? Yeah, so let me give you three practical examples on EarthScan because we moved away from farming about four or five years ago. So let me move into the realms of what our customers are doing today. And there are three things. I mean, it's mainly public companies and private companies and public sector companies as well. They come on, um, they 
build a portfolio of assets. Either they bring their asset or they query our sort of vast library. And then they can baseline that risk to say, okay, this is what's already happened to my asset over this period. So let me take an architectural practice, for instance. So they use Earthscan to look at their pre, like their pre-development design and construction decisions, both for a greenfield and a brownfield site for the commercial real estate to say, okay, what should the building look like relative to the physical risk that this is likely to go through in the coming decade? Remember, some of these assets are 40, 50, 60 years old. And similarly with a large hotel group, um, they have thousands of different hotels across the world. They wanted to know whether they should build additional or refinance additional hotels on the um, coast, for instance, so that they can look at the risk and say, actually, it could be too risky either to raise finance or to think about construction designs, which could withstand these types of wind patterns. We recently had a manufacturer that had a pretty terrible flood in the entire region. And what they wanted to know, is this an event or is this a trend? And what we told them, this is a long-term trend and you should think about some of your critical assets. So they had made some acquisitions, but at the time of the acquisition, Jane, they had made no, what we call climate assessment. They hadn't used any tool to look at things like water scarcity, climate, heat risk. And what they discovered is that they were losing productivity on some of their factories. So they made a massive investment in their HVAC systems for those factories. But whether you're looking at a, at a single company, you're looking at a community, or you're looking at a country level, everyone's subject to the same type of climate risk in the sense that they need to get a better understanding, get that baseline, start monitoring climate risk, and start using forecasting techniques so that you can start protecting your assets. Mm-hmm. And you said that you'd moved away from farming, but actually that kind of basic need to get food is something that we're really experiencing the problems with climate change with, I'm thinking in the UK at the moment, we're suffering from a shortage of basic vegetables, which has been put down to climate change. So was the decision to move away from farming because you decide that you can't do anything to help farmers counteract the problems of climate change? Or were there other reasons why you moved away? No, actually, um, let me just clarify. So when we say we moved away from farming, we moved away from farm level. So looking at um, um, applications to help farmers optimize their inputs, for instance, but we remain pretty active in our natural capital work. So for about five years, we've been researching the impacts on the sort of change of state of nature, land use changes, water risk changes, bio- biodiversity losses. All those will feed into things like how, where do I source my food from over time? Where do I have critical dependencies? How do I think about nature-based solutions? So I would say, sort of sort of separate farm tech from our nature work that we're doing, our sort of natural capital work, which is getting rolled out in the coming quarter. So there's also just a, a lot more recognition that this is not just a climate crisis. This is a, this is a twin crisis of, of a biodiversity collapse and also climate change at the same time. So we made sure that when we really build our climate intelligence, we're factoring in what we call a 360 degree view on risk. So you can look at both your physical hazards and you can look at your transitional risks, which are really born out of policy changes or technological changes or sudden carbon prices. And then, of course, natural capital. How are, how are fluctuations in natural capital going to affect my earnings, my cash flow, my um, va- um, valuation, or even the security of my asset, for instance? So you can have massive deforestation and suddenly your your flooding risk, your, your rainfall circulation changes suddenly. And that could have a big bearing on, can I even operate my assets um, in that location? Obviously, it's difficult for even the sort of climate scientists to predict what's coming next. 
But what does the system that you've got tell us about umbrella trends? So, for instance, in the idea of farming, is it that it's suggesting that actually we need to move to a completely different type of farming? Because if you're just farming in a field, you're always going to be at the sway of the weather or the or the climate. And other other industries, it's pinpointed as having to change completely to deal with this climate crisis. Yeah. So, so first and foremost, climate is doesn't really discriminate on one industry or the other industry. Every industry will be affected. The question is, to what degree and over what time frame? And also, what can you plausibly know and what can you plausibly do now to sort of make that make that intervention? So farming is an obvious candidate where you have direct exposure to climate, extreme events, weather. So think about tourism, farming, construction sector, um, energy, wind energy, solar energy. All these are subject to some pretty big physical changes. Now, not all changes are equal in um, all parts of the world. There are different parts of the world, which is why you need a modeling framework and you need AI and machine learning to start looking at vast scales over multiple timeframes across multiple hazards. So we can give you the best intelligence to figure out, okay, nothing's going to happen to your assets or something's going to happen, or the probability is that you're going to be fairly safe. And remember, not all asset chain will be affected. Not all industries will be equally affected and not all geographies will be affected. Actually, some may be net, net beneficiaries, very few but there will be some net beneficiaries to climate. A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. DZ exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. DZ's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit dz.com slash UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners. Now, just to look into Servest in a bit more detail, you raised $36 million in funding, but your last round was in 2021. So are there plans to raise more? There's always plans to raise more, and we are always talking to um, investors. So uh, I'm in the midst of talking to a variety of different investors. We spend a long time making sure that we have the right types of investors, investors who fundamentally believe in the climate problem and understand that these are long-term these are long-term investments. If you're looking for a quick flip, this is not your sector to be in. So I think like all other CEOs and founders within the sector, we try and also you know, tell investors, think about different metrics, uh, think about the nascency of this industry. Because I think just as we're coming to grips with um, new technological capabilities, industries coming to grips with what does climate mean for them? So we've seen the first wave of regulation like TCFD, climate disclosures, the EU taxonomy. I can tell you from our conversations that the vast majority of industry leaders and ESG managers, sustainability managers, risk managers, they're very early in their climate journey, very, very early. So I think the market will grow and I think it'll be a huge market. I think it's a critical market, but it'll take some time. And this is what investors need to understand. Actually, climate tech funding saw a surge in 2022, but obviously in the current economic downturn, do you think that that's going to change? And is this issue something that should be sort of above the sort of vicissitudes of the markets and sort of VC investment trends? 
That's a great question. Um, I actually think you need a marriage of government policy, potentially government subsidies. So when we saw the Inflation Reduction Act last year, I think it's possibly the largest state intervention that I'd ever seen. But you need industrial policy. Uh, for the for the magnitude of challenge that we have, we have to think creatively. We have to think differently. So it's not just a pool of venture capital dollars, right? It's also, is that synced up with smart government policy? So as you've probably seen, the um, EU launched their Green Deal industrial plan months later, right? And now we have TNFT. So without government regulation, you're not going to get the catalyst within this sector. So I'm actually delighted to see government intervention for the first time, because I think without that, uh, private sector wouldn't take the incentives or companies wouldn't be forced to change. Um, so you do need that marriage, but also there's some brilliant climate tech companies out there, people who are trying to reduce carbon. Ultimately, this is an equation of taking carbon out. It's not just a measurement of it. It's can we start removing it at mass over time? We very much are not just focused on what we call the carbon carbon tunnel vision. Carbon's important. Fundamentally, everybody needs to get, get to uh, net zero, but... There's been scant attention, uh, particularly in the investment community, to adaptation. And now that we know these risks, can we quantify them? Can we measure the impact? And can we do something to these assets, right? I think getting to net zero is important, and it's everybody should get there as fast as we can. But don't forget that the physical risk is actually accelerating. So, And there's a massive lag time between you know, getting to net zero and thinking about a more stable climate. And and, and that's decades out, Jane. That's not around the corner. You don't get to net zero tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon, you have no physical risk. We're talking five, six, seven decades with physical risk locked into the Earth system. So think about how quickly we need to get to net zero, but then think about how much stability we'll need in the world's Earth systems after that to live in a stable environment. We're decades out. Yeah, and... I mean, in technology generally, we always see governments are way behind sort of technological development and are always sort of trying to play catch up. When I look at kind of climate tech, I see so many innovators out there with tech designed to help ease the climate crisis. But I'm, I do wonder how often they get to sit in the same room as governments. I mean, for example, do you, does your company get to talk to governments at events like the UN's COP? Would that be helpful if you did? Why doesn't it happen if it doesn't? I think it needs to happen more. We certainly get involved to the maximal extent that we can. So we have participated in COP as panel speakers and sort of sponsors. We stay very close to COP. COP is probably the sort of, you know, the sort of ultimate meeting that government and business and sort of civil society can have together on climate. So we will be speaking this year as well. We've gone a bit further on our advisory board as well. We brought on the former head of the EPA in the States. We've also brought on some people from the policy world, so people like Nadia Shadler. We've also brought on Mark um, Girolami, who's part of the Alan Turing Institute. He's a chief scientist. I think this is not a singular conversation. You need to galvanize multiple opinions, um, thought leadership, advocacy, bring all that to bear in terms of trying to convince government, trying to accelerate government. But, but of course, governments and regulations are always going to be slow, slower than the problem. And this is where smart private sector can act really, really get ahead, but you need that synchronicity uh, between the two, or else you don't just build a private sector in sort of isolation of smart government policy, because I think people could waste lots of money. 
And you said slow. It does feel as if we see a lot of talk from government, but not much action. Is that is that a fair assessment of the situation, would you say? I think it's fair. I think many governments have now certainly the binding targets, but then we see policies like opening new coal mines, for instance. Um, it reverses and it loses some of the faith that people have in government policy. So I think government should remain steadfast and committed. Now, I think the Russian crisis last year obviously forced a conversation around energy security. But I think if we can accelerate the investments in renewables, have smart policy and have smart subsidies, there are many parts of the world where renewable energy is now outpacing carbon. It's all fossil fuel-based um, um, energy. So then we need to have the grown-up conversation on things like nuclear energy. Um, for instance, I know some countries are fairly moribund by, by this, but I think they do need to have the conversation. How do we get to energy security? We're also thinking about a low-carbon world. I mean, these are not easy choices. These are very difficult choices. Think about a government coming in for four years, right? The first job of any government is to get re-elected, right? So they have to bound their, their sort of fiscal policies, their sort of um, industrial strategy policies every four years. So there's no incentive for, for really unfavorable decisions. I mean, as you know, in the UK, we have the Climate Change Committee, but in other countries, um, they don't really have equivalent bodies. So it's very hard to drive effective public policy whilst also driving for solutions. Sorry, I missed your question, Jim. Oh, I was just asking you what your thoughts were on nuclear. Um, I think it's a necessary part of the energy mix. Uh, the question is, now, can we design the next generation of nuclear nuclear capacity, which which can serve as long-term, low-cost? Uh, I, I, I say low-cost, I know it's expensive, but if you're in, in the overall mix of carbon uh, waste management, if you think about the whole cycle over time, because there's also going to be improvements in nuclear energy as well. So we work very closely. Um, one of our team members is a is an expert in this sector. And saying we, we, we overplay the risk factors, but we underplay this the, the longevity of nuclear nuclear capacity. So I think it has to be part of the mix. I don't think um, it'll, it'll be taken off the table. Back to Sylvester then. Now, what other plans do you have that you can tell us about for 2023? And you've mentioned some of the customers that you have. Are there others that you'd like to add to the portfolio? What What's sort of in the near-term future for you guys as a company? So we only went to market last year after about five and a half years of research and building and engineering also. We went to market in early quarter one last year. So now we're servicing or monitoring assets for our clients. I think like close to a trillion dollars worth of market cap uh, most of our clients have. So there's about 100 organizations that we're working with. So some of the partnerships that I think we put into the public realm are sort of Cap, cap Gemini, Argent Infrastructure, which is a large private private equity fund, Lexica, Eight Versa. So these are the sustainability consulting firms that are out there that are helping to push climate intelligence into their clients. So the plans for this year, I mean, there's, there's, it's just growth, 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 right? So if you look at growth across the customer base, the partnership base, uh, we're thinking about additional capital pools, and then obviously talent. Nothing happens without talent. Uh, we're very fortunate. We have built a fantastic team, a research-led team, and a great product team, a great design team, and engineering team. And now we're building up that sales BD capability team as well. So we have spread ourselves across the States, across Europe as well. I think... Expanding beyond that will really come by the partners this year. I don't, I don't, I don't think we'll have the capacity to um, just think about direct 
sales forces in different parts of the world, at least for this year. Now, you've mentioned, you know, how having this kind of data and intelligence can help people think about what they do with their assets. But some things can't be movable, right? So infrastructure like motorways, airports, even data centers. Talk me through kind of the worst case scenarios that those kind of places face due to extreme weather and what can actually be done about it. So there's a range of options. So if you think about a data center, um, I don't know, in the middle of Arizona, let's just say, and it seems like a high-tech asset, but it's subject to some pretty high um, heat stress, um, water stress potentially as well. Um, the wind pattern could, could, could actually change. All that will affect the integrity and, and the operating integrity of that asset. Now, the choices for owners are, do I adapt this asset? Can I fortify it in some way? Can I think about a different energy source? Can I think about flood defenses um, if it's a water problem? But ultimately, they will make decisions about, should we just replace this asset? Should we relocate it? Because not every asset can be retrofitted. So this is why I'm very keen that we continue working with people like design companies, architectural practices, service providers, so they can start at the very start of an asset's life, they can start optimizing for what does the future state physical risks actually look like, right? Then we can think about a net zero from day one, maybe even negative carbon. But actually you can optimize the design for what that geography is gonna look like because Arizona still needs jobs, by the way, right? So you can't just move entire industries out. You do need to have the conversation on how is it best that we can adapt this? And this is where the partnership with governments comes in. Do we need tax incentives? To, and again, this is where the um, Inflation Reduction Act was so valuable, right? It's giving people the opportunity to take risk with those subsidies to transfer to a new model. But adaptation is a conversation that's not being had at any meaningful level, Jane. And I think as we see more and more assets get affected by extreme events, winds, heat patterns, wildfires, um, or just sheer loss of productivity, it doesn't need to be a sort of acute event. It's, it's also chronic risk as well. So creeping um, heat heat changes will have detrimental effects on things like labor, machine productivity over time, human health over time as well. So all this needs to be factored in. We are working with a healthcare provider and they're very concerned about long-term patient care, for instance. So what do the different um, IPCC scenarios do and how should they think about their um, adaptation planning on that? Now, I've written quite a bit about smart cities and for years we saw cities looking to data and analytics to solve problems like overcrowding, congestion. And we haven't really seen that much movement on any of those things, despite the fact that they are using incredibly smart systems to gather lots of intelligence. So I guess my really cynical question here is, you know, data and analytics can't solve the problem of climate change. It requires much greater change, doesn't it? 100%. This is a partnership. I think data and analytics and ML and all this, it can tell you what's happening. It can tell you when something may happen and it can may even tell you what to do over time. But actually telling people what to do requires massive incentives. <laughs> people know that smoking is bad for them. People know that pollution is bad for them. What, what do we do with these problems? This is why we focus very much, and from day one, I was very concerned about asset level risk. Just like my assets in Africa got heavily affected, I'm worried and I'm very keen for people to understand what's going to happen to their assets. And again, we don't discriminate over time, whether you're a citizen, you're a community, you're a company or a country, doesn't matter. Everyone's assets will get affected. This is why you need that partnership with government. It, it's not going to happen any other way. And anyone who tells you otherwise is just fooling themselves. The market's not going to solve itself. 
you need government intervention. Yeah, and we've touched on the fact that it's not just the responsibility of government, but also the private sector. Do you think the private sector is doing anywhere near enough to help mitigate this problem? I think some are. Listen, I think we have to celebrate the um, successes, but I think there's a structural shift in um, corporate markets, financing markets, insurance markets for the first time. Now, admittedly, a lot of that is driven by either direct disruption or regulation. So I think disclosures is, think about it as like the base the base case you have to build even just to understand your um, health on your business, whether you're looking at uh, carbon, you're looking at physical risk, you're looking at transition risk. Once you have that baseline, then it's a lot easier to navigate and figure out operational investment, strategic plans in terms of what should what should we do. Now, now that Jane knows this risk, what can she do? When can she do it? How much capital does she need? So, so if you were going to say what the single most important thing that businesses can do to make a difference in this area, what, what would that one thing be? I think start this, start measuring and disclosing. What risk are you setting on? Because remember, we buy your securities. We come to work for, for you. We buy your goods and services. And also, they're just in, they are the, probably the most critical levers. Alongside financial markets, industries are the most important levers to get us to net zero over time, right? We need those companies to really produce green technologies or to take out the carbon or to de-risk as much as possible. Because we we rely on their security, we rely on their tax base. We have to think about jobs, right? So I know there's a lot of discussion around degrowth. I think some of it looks quite seductive. The question is, markets still need to function now. Can they function better? Can they be climate aligned over time? And that's my great hope is we can start climate aligning every action, every investment, every government policy over time. And on that optimistic note, I'm afraid we've kind of run out of time. We could talk about this issue forever, I think. But thank you, Iggy, for a fascinating discussion on what is probably one of the most pressing issues the globe faces. And thank you to everyone who is listening to this week's edition of the UKTN podcast. To keep up to date with the latest UK tech developments, head over to www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter. And do get in touch with me via LinkedIn or Twitter at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time, goodbye from me. A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. DZ exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. DZ's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit dz.com slash UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners.